I sent uh, to those of you who are on our mailing list, I sent out a note saying that what is happening in in Libya could in some ways be seen as an analogy for what what is happening in the book of Revelation where where someone is you know where people are rising up against their their ruler and and uh, and he seems determined to hang on uh, not uh, even though it is to the detriment of his people to say the least you know this is terrible terrible so we certainly should hope that that will that will be resolved in a in a way that will not mean much suffering for the people of Libya let's pray <clears throat> dear god we thank you for this opportunity to study the bible we invite your presence we ask you to forgive our sins we ask you that you will illuminate us and that we may see things clearer and know you better uh, as we study revelation today we pray for the people of libya and for all those who seek liberty that they may indeed find it and not be shortchanged in any way we pray in your name amen <clears throat> well many things uh, to <coughs> that are still uh, unresolved here but i thought we would uh, go on and try to finish the text of revelation 21st and then try to put some things together uh, at least do a, a sort of try to see how uh, these various scenes might overlap and how we could sort it out. Uh, so let's uh, start reading Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and the one who sat on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. Yeah, any any uh, comments on this text? Just uh, just a preliminary preliminary comment. Now I put the headline judgment on there, is that fair? Great white throne, one who sat on it. Now there are great thrones in the Bible, but this is the great white throne and I think this is a a singular occurrence, the great white throne. Some of you have been to Zion National Park, and there is a great white throne in Zion. Have you seen that? One of the mountains in Zion is a great white throne. It's, it's quite, quite appropriate, yes? Uh-huh. So it isn't golden, it is white. But white is a color, a color that has some prestige too, so you could say that is also a, an appropriate, uh, appropriate image. So, of course, here... The notion of the heaven and earth fleeing away from his presence and no place being found for them. Uh, you wish to comment on that? The whole thing, the sort of the whole cosmos dissolves, you know. So if you were, you could, I don't want to overdo it or push it too far, but you could, of course, say that that there is no, you know, what, what's there first? What, what is there essentially? you know in terms of our in terms of of universal reality in terms of cosmic reality what is there first and what is there essentially god god not the earth not the cosmos you know if heaven and earth can flee away from his presence and no place being found for them then the one essential the one essential reality that is there first and and essentially is god 
So that I think you could you could say, and you could you could do do some theological excursions from that that sort of portrayal alone. But we're not going to do that now. Let's go do more judgment. Yes. Well, help me. <laughs> Where are we? <laughs> I could say I have no idea <laughs> because because. You know, yes, that is an important question. So, should we? So, maybe we should try to locate our locate our thing in relation to something. So, we could say, uh, well, what, where are we? Sort of in a in a broad broader sense, we could say that we could use the the thousand years, the millennium, as a as a point of reference. So, where are we? Are we now? Are are we in a sort of pre-millennial? Or a post-millennial, you know, are we, uh, are we here or there? And then maybe you have, maybe you want to, uh, to uh, answer your own question. <laughs> Is it pre-millennial or post-millennial? So, the the thrones that you saw in in uh, earlier in chapter twenty, they were there were thrones here in during the millennium. And those who sat on them, and they were uh, given, you know, authority to reign with God for a thousand years. So there is a there are thrones here, and then there is the white throne, the gay, great white throne. And uh, then the whole thing falls away. Everything falls away when that white throne appears, as it were. So, well, we might have to read a little more, see if that helps. Uh, verse 12. Let's have uh, one of you read verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book was opened, the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works, as recorded in the books. So do we need to disagree that this is a scene of judgment? Seems like it. That this is judgment. Books were opened. Another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. This is pretty much uh, pretty clear that we are witnessing a judgment scene, as it were. Uh, and uh, everyone is there, dead and the dead. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So, <clears throat> so what does this mean? It must mean that the dead have been coming, have come back to life in some way. And uh, I will give a comment on that in a moment. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And all were judged according to what they had done. So here we have a resurrection, don't we? So we have the dead are judged here, but we haven't completely resurrected them. But now it looks like they are being resurrected in verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Everything gives up the dead here, because death and Hades too, which is the sort of ultimate depiction of death, uh, the abode of death as it were, death and Hades. Even death and Hades have to yield their prisoners as it were. And then uh, again, all were judged according to what they had done in the uh, NRSV translation. Uh, <clears throat> next verse, uh, the last two verses of chapter 20. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose names was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Yeah, you wish to comment on that, the, the idea that death and Hades is also thrown into the lake of fire. And then we had the second death. So we have a lot of terms here, second death. And uh, so what does that mean? What, what should we think? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, what do we have? Let's do our terminology here. Does Revelation 20 talks about a first resurrection? Does it say there is a first resurrection? Does it? So there is a first resurrection. Is there a, 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 no, a sort of numbered first resurrection? Revelation 20? Or, I mean, don't, you cannot be confined to my slides here. You have to remember what we did earlier. So there is a first resurrection, isn't there? Blessed are those who have part in the first resurrection. Over them the second death has no power, you know. So there is a good thing. First resurrection seems to be a resurrection for the good, for those who are on the, on the, on the winning side in the cosmic conflict. And over them the second death, there is a second death uh, uh, in the story. And... Uh, uh, and that is here in Revelation 14, uh, 20, verse uh, uh, 14 or 15, uh, that there is a, first, a second death, and that is the end of That's the end. So there is a first resurrection, and there must be a second resurrection. Should we assume that? At least a second resurrection. And then if there is a second death, there must be a first death. I mean, mustn't there? By sort of necessity, there were first death. So the first death, the first death is easy, isn't it? I mean, you don't need any revelation or chronology to do the first death. I mean, to know that there is the reality of death in a sort of first-hand manner. What is that? That's the de- that must be the death we all, we all uh, uh, are all too well acquainted with, uh, I would think. So the first death, we don't need to, we don't need to put that into a sort of uh, chronological framework in the book of Revelation because the first death is all over the place. So there is no need to, to specify that. Uh, but these other events we could specify because there is a first resurrection. So if we do, if we do a thousand years uh, sort of uh, as, a, as a reference, where is the first resurrection vis-a-vis the thousand years? We've done it already, but so it's here. First resurrection here. I think this is quite inevitable to put it this way. Now, of course, there are many ways to construct the thousand years, but now uh, we're not doing all the details now. And then there is a, a where's the second resurrection then? Well, that's clear from the revelation because it says that the others were not re- resurrected till the thousand years were over. Uh, and then where is the second death? Okay, so, so what, what you're doing here, see, what Danielle is saying is that there, is, there seems to be a narrow uh, that's, that defines the, re- the people who are resurrected here in 24, seems to define that group narrowly. They are few. They are those who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. And you are saying that later in the book of Revelation, uh, in the passages we're reading today, it's more broadly defined because there are, they, 
there then the book is talking about those who were found written in the book and and those who weren't found written in the book is that is that fair yeah. Yeah. now now it seems like the book weighs in though and saying that the first resurrection is the resurrection you want to be part of blessed are those who have part in the first resurrection over them the second death has no power you know so that you know uh, narrow or broad that is uh, the that, that's where where one wants to be yeah brad yeah you, you yes so you could use it more metaphorically and you could say that to be a follower of jesus you know by the criteria in the book of revelation being a follower of jesus to go where the lamb goes is to go to martyrdom in 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 a, in a traditional sense I mean, in the, in the way that word has come to, what that word has come to mean. Being a follower of Jesus is to commit to, to, to following him even where he, you know, it says in the book of Revelation uh, 14, uh, Revelation 14, that these are they who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And where does he go, you know, that, that part has been defined. Yes, David. So you could, you could say the narrow definition is a definition that makes sense in view of the context, context because the people, believers, at the time of the writing of this book are under threat. And that is a possibility, but we have talked in this group before, that that view, the view that there is a universal sort of a, a wide-scale persecution at the time of the writing of John, is a contested piece of evidence that there is... Uh, uh, Leonard Thompson and, and Adela Yarbrough Collins, others say that there is not that much evidence of persecution at, in the first century, and that, uh, see, one group reads Revelation as though this is a book addressing people who are aware of a danger. They know what the danger is. The danger is the Roman Empire and persecution by, in the Roman Empire. And the other view says, Adela Yarbrough Collins, Leonard Thompson, others, they say, this book is written to people who are unaware of danger. They don't know that there is danger. And they need to be woken up to see the danger that is there. And so the notion that, that you can sort of define the, the recipient, the implied reader, the original implied reader, as a reader who knows that we are persecuted is not as much a foregone conclusion as it used to be. That's what I'm saying. Because the... the, the uh, quite weighty scholarship has, has come out on that. Now, let me just revisit that piece a little bit more. Why is that being uh, questioned? It's being questioned because people who write the history, see, here is Domitian. He is the last one of the emperors of that family. And he uh, goes down, and then a new family comes up, Trajan, those guys, Trajan, Hadrian, those, the, the emperors who were from Spain. They were from, from, the east, from the western part of the empire. And when they came up, somebody had to write history for them. And people in those days who wrote history, they did not write history the way you would like your history to, to be, uh, be written. They wrote history as, as what? I mean, they, people who wrote in general did not... Did not uh, you know, it's not like this. You think, well, I think I'd like to write a book... <laughs> You know, I wonder what I should write my book about, <clears throat> you know, that you, that you are a sort of independent enterpriser, you know, writing books. People who write books and people who, who make paintings and do sculptures, they do it 
How do they do it? Commission. Commissioned, exactly. They are commissioned. They do it at somebody's request. They do it for somebody. And what does that commission relationship, what does that introduce into your, 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 your piece of art? It introduces the element of bias. So people who write the history of Domitian during the time of Trajan will write what kind of history? They will say Domitian was a jerk, you know. He was, you know, and will will put all ki- heap all kinds of scorn on Domitian, that really is not may not have been justified. You see, so all you know when you look at all these histories, and this is what what Leonard Thompson and others have done. They have gone to look at the at the you know whatever primary sources or extra biblical sources you have and they have seen well was domitian such was he so much worse than everybody else maybe not so because the people who wrote to ma- who made him out to be that kind of person they wrote history commissioned history so well here is <coughs> let's do commissioned history in the 21st century George Bush says, I'd like you to write a history for me about Bill Clinton. You know, if, if, if that were to be the case, you know, you're, and, and, and you could say, uh, you know, now Obama commissions somebody to write a history about George Bush. You know, well, you would be, shouldn't have said this. It was not a very, it was not a good, it was not a good idea. <laughs> it was not a good idea. Even, you know, let's just say that even today there is at least ideological bias. There is at the least a potential of ideological bias. In the old days, there was more than ideological bias. There was the bias of commissioning. Somebody wrote, somebody was asked to write a history, and they wrote it in order to please the person who commissioned that history. You get the point. So anyway, that was a big digression. I think there were a couple of churches where there seems to be specific evidence of persecution. The church in Pergamum, where, where Satan dwells, is a church that is suffering persecution. The church in Thyatira seems to be suffering persecution too. The church in La- Laodicea, is the church in Laodicea, does it sound like it's suffering persecution? They seem to be... Ha- they, they, they seem to be having their eyes on the stock market, you know, that, that's the, that there is a great sort of financial boon, uh, b- boom or, or sort of, you know, everything seems to be fine. So to the Laodiceans, there is a message about the danger of which they do not seem to be aware. So I think either side could have some evidence in the text on, on that issue. Uh, just this one from David Aune. Uh, the modern reader will also wonder how it is possible to narrate the final judgment of the dead in verse 12, though their resurrection is not mentioned until verse 13. While it is possible that all of verse 13 is a later insertion by the author, he always does that, David Downey. It is also possible that this is yet another instance of his use of hysteron proteron. You know, something comes after that is in the, the, that... He is not telling us this in a linear way. He's jumping back and forth. Something that comes after is mentioned before. You see, the, resurrect, the reality of a resurrection is assumed before it is mentioned, you see. And I would li- just like to, to quote him on this one because that happens, in my view, all the time in Revelation, that there is something that is assumed in the text and, and, and mentioned uh, 
mentioned later. But we have had a remedy for that in this class, haven't we? We have found the ultimate cure for that problem in the book of Revelation. What is the ultimate cure for that problem? It is that the reader of Revelation needs to be a re-reader and know what comes after, as it were. So, okay, here is what I will uh, want to put together now and try to, to uh, do this <coughs> with your uh, critical eye on it. <coughs> now, before the thousand years, Satan is bound and there is a first resurrection. After the thousand years, Satan is released. There is a second resurrection at that time and there is a judgment, and there is a battle. Uh, so I would put, say, uh, this is just, you know, there might be uh, reasons for critiquing this, but there is also, uh, we have already read about the battle, and now there is judgment, and maybe these seem to, how do they relate to each other? That's the question. How do they relate to each other? Do they superimpose on each other? Do, are they completely separate from each other? That's the that's the issue. You will agree with me that there is a battle after the thousand years. We did that already. There, that's very clear. There is, a, there is this Satan going forth to gather the nation for battle, for war, and then they go up to take the, new, the beloved city and so on. So there is a battle scene and now there is a judgment scene in the context of something that has, is taking place after the thousand years. And this we did last time. So the, the battle scene, they marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's uh, the battle, the end, end game in the battle scene. Uh, so... <coughs> Here are those, I try to represent it like this. In the battle scene, which is Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, Satan is released, there is a second resurrection, there is battle, there is fire, and there is this specific mention uh, of someone thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, end of, of verse 10. Then, the rest of the chapter. There is a great white throne, judgment scene, in the verses in verses 11 through 15 there is a great white throne there is second resurrection specified in that sequence of verses books are opened that's judgment so there are bat there is battle on one side and books on the other side so <clears throat> and uh, then there is fire also in the judgment uh, sequence and it ends very much on the same note in the battle scene, thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. In the judgment scene, thrown into the lake of fire. Now, feel free to comment on this. How are, how are we going to relate these two, these two uh, narrations, these two stories to each other? Because they seem to end on the same point. Do you see it? Or are you, are you unhappy about the way I have represented the text, first of all? Is this a fair representation of the text, of the, of, the, of the narrative of each of these things? A narration of battle in the first ten verses. A narration of judgment in the last four verses. Someone must have made a decision that certain people were going to be part of the first resurrection and some people aren't. That, that there must have been some, some sort of process here for that 
to to be uh, have sorted out, which of course would be a, an extremely uh, I mean which which is more decisive that would be a very decisive uh, 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 sort of determination that had been had been made. Now let's see what what's uh, here. What uh, try to go on a little here. Resurrection and the second death. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Uh, that means those who did not participate in the first resurrection, obviously. And then there is the notion of resurrection here in uh, 2013. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. So we have, we have two in each of those two sections. The battle section, which is uh, 25, and in the Judgment section 2013, we have resurrections taking place, <coughs> clearly. And then, uh, again, more of that, uh, the same in, in uh, for, uh, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So there is the end of the end of the, uh, of, uh, of something there, death and Hades. And I would like to, to weigh in on that the way I... The one way of of seeing that. So let's just see it again now. The same, uh, the same thing. Now again, uh, representations here, and I would like us to try to integrate them. That's what I'd like to do. Like to see how they relate to each other, and and try to integrate them. Now here is one thing I'd like to say just quickly, and then you can uh, uh, just uh, now. I will not let you talk more, so <laughs> you can think about it. <laughs> Because now we we should try to move move through a few things and then put put the possibilities up before before uh, you and then see what happens. So Revelation two twenty three. I will give to each one according to your works. Revelation eighteen six. Render to her as she herself has rendered and repay her double for her works. Mix a double draught in for her in the cup she mixed. That's one of the voices speaking there as Babylon falls in, in Revelation 18. 2012, and the dead were judged according to their works, as recorded in the books. 2013, and all were judged according to their works. Now, the usual way of reading this, the usual way across the board, uh, evangelical or Adventist, most Adventist too, I would say, is to say, this is a scene of retributive judgment. There is retribution here. There is a certain kind of works, bad works, and that the works is deserving of retribution. And when I, uh, some weeks ago, a few weeks ago, went to Andrews to give my, read my paper on, on, on the cosmic conflict in Revelation, the one thing where the audience really pushed back hard was because I tried to take down the notion of retribution. That I said that the, the logic of the theology of revelation and the logic of history is not the logic of retribution. So I tried to attenuate that to, to and, and so on this point, <coughs> on this point, uh, let me just say the default position in Adventist interpretations is as is as firmly committed to the notion of retribution as the default position is in other uh, interpretive communities. That seems to me to be, to be the case. Now, what's the other possibility? A judgment according to works. 
what is, what is intended here? Is he intending to say that this would be retribution that is proportional, that you will be punished in proportion to what you have done? Or is he saying that there will be, that the judgment is a non-arbitrary judgment? That it isn't, it, it's not the punitive it's not the punitive aspect. It's not the retributive aspect that is accented. It is the fact that the judgment is not arbitrary. It is, what is it according to? What you had done. So it is not arbitrary. It is not specifying retribution. That now, or it has to be a certain, you know, it has to be proportioned out in a certain measure according to, uh, to, to uh, in a retributive paradigm, uh, you might say. There is, you know, there is consequences to those works or to those choices or to those commitments that human beings make. But it is not, the accent is not on retribution. That's what we're saying. No, uh, that, that's, that, that, that's, a nice, that's a nice nuance because a retributive judgment is not arbitrary either. But I'm just saying... I'm just talking about accenting here, and I'm saying that in one, in one paradigm, the accent is on what, is, what you are being promised here is retribution in a certain measure. What I'm saying here is that it is not the, the, it's not the paradigm of retribution that is being highlighted. It is the paradigm of non-arbitrariness, you know. We, we, we'll have to do some more on this. I need to get uh, to, uh, I see, uh, I'll just try to, to represent this first, and then we will see. Now, here I will propose <coughs> uh, that revelation could be seen, uh, uh, what, that there is a certain, uh, there is a paradigm of revelation here that is really the judgment aspect. Uh, <coughs> and the way I would like to, to integrate these two, uh, the battle and the judgment. How do we do this? So there is a, one sense they are going up to battle. And in another sense there is judgment. And they both have the same bottom line, fire, thrown into the fire as it were. So, so here is here is the here is the attempt to do this. So there is second resurrection. There is Satan being released from prison. He goes out to deceive the nations. Uh, the nations are deceivable. They go up and they surround the holy city, which we said uh, we have claimed is the New Jerusalem that hasn't really been featured fully till till chapter twenty-one. And so there is this battle scene as they surround the nation, surround the holy city and then what and then what and then what and then there is a great white throne maybe you know could you have that could you have could you have a sort of revelatory scene there suddenly there is a you know in we're talking symbolic language here everything is is symbolic uh, so we're to uh, but just to, to stick with the sort of material ingredients here. Now there is a great white throne. And that revelation of the one sitting on the great white throne is so, is so overwhelming 
that what? The her well, yes, the battle is paralyzed, and the text of Revelation says that the whole cosmos melts away. It's like there is nothing there. The stage, the stage on which everything rests, is sort of dis dissolves, and there is this revelation, and there is <coughs> the person on the throne. Who is on the throne? Well, one of the person who is on the throne, who is one of the sort of contested ingredients in the cosmic conflict, is who? Well, there is God, but there is also the contest over Jesus, whether Jesus should be there on that throne, you know. So, so here is this great revelation. And what happens then if we now move? Moved. There is a judgment scene, but the judgment scene is in some ways primarily or, or at least in a significant way also a scene of revelation when we see what is happening here. And then... And then, the, so there is a sort of, a sort of timeout in the battle, isn't there? There is timeout now. There is no, you know, suddenly this army that has surrounded the city, they are not moving anymore. There is a, a, a revelatory scene that the Bible makes into a, a scene of judgment, a scene of judgment that is a non-arbitrary judgment. And then what happens in the battle? The battle now engages again. Does the battle engage again? Now the battle engages as a dissolution in the sight of the opposing powers, isn't it? That, that they, they sort of fall on, it, on each other, like we tried to depict last time. That there is a, that it, it uh, that, that uh, uh, the ones now who came up united and marching on cue, to the, toward the holy city, they are now sort of arrested in their tracks, and they are uh, they are uh, uh, fighting each other. There is dissolution in the ranks of the opposing power. So the non-arbitrariness of the judgment then has one more dimension to it. Not only that that uh, that it is non-arbitrary in the broadest sense, but also in the sense that as it moves into the execution phase, as it were. Now I'm using crude terminology now. As it used, moves into the execution phase, who does the? And I will use very crude language here. Who does the killing? Well, you, you get the picture. You can answer that, that for yourself. I think these scenes are integrated. They, they, it's possible to integrate them, and that the accent should be on, on the judge. The accent there in the judgment scene is an, an is a revelatory scene, that that shows things as they are. It shows Jesus who He is. And I would love to invoke the Pauline text here from Philippians. Let this mind be in you, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, humble person that he is, did not see equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but already in this self-emptying mode of Jesus, he gave it up. He made it appear like he wasn't up there. He made it appear like he was just one of the... One of us, as it were. And so he emptied himself and took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. And being, form, being found as a human being, what does Paul's poem say? Being found as a human being, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name 
above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I would like to put, to put that aspect into the revelatory scene that sort of comes up there and, and, and is, a, is, a, is a kind of, uh, yeah, brings resolution to, to, to the, uh, in the cosmic conflict. Any, any, uh, uh, yes, I want to, uh, I need to end here. I had planned to, to show you a perspective on, on Nietzsche today, but we are going to be out of time, so we will have to end on just the notion that, uh, of, of death ending, or, or the end of death here. Uh, when you read, when you read uh, John Donne's poem, Death Be Not Proud, do you read it as though death should not be proud because of resurrection or because of uh, immortal soul? Have you read? Uh, do I need to? Uh, is this a poem familiar to the rest of you? Have you read John Donne's poem, Death Be Not Proud? It's familiar to many of you, isn't it? Well, this is surely one of the most amazing poems in the English language. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art, thou, thou art not so. And then in the end of the poem, and death shall be no more, death, thou shalt die. So, here is Jesus talking in Revelation. I was dead, 118. I was dead and see, I'm alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 6, 8. This seems to me to depict a demonic reality. Its rider's name was death, and Hades followed him. So that is not God's reality, it's the, it's, the, it's the opponent's reality. And then Revelation 20, verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the, death, the dead that were in them. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Lake of fire. Now, does that seem to you to be, does that seem to be uh, an end of, of death? That the reality of death itself has been has been has been conquered. That's what it seems to me to be, and and uh, uh, that so when death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, that is not an image that that seems to fit with the notion of eternal suffering, eternal torment. That seems to be to be the ultimate dissolution of, of the project of the opposing side and the, and the reign of the realm of death, as it were. Uh, I'm skipping Nietzsche, and I want to read a poem in the end. Uh, maybe we will do Nietzsche. If you get interested in it, you can uh, ask me to, to, uh, to comment on Nietzsche and his view of Christianity and why I think Nietzsche, who wasn't a Christian, is a better Christian than most, Christi most of Christianity. I would have loved to rehabilitate Nietzsche and his perspective and his comment on, on, the, on the element of vengefulness in Christian theology. But uh, <clears throat> I want to read this poem in the end. How to read funeral poetry. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining one, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. I'm reading from Isaiah 14, verse 12. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of assembly on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. 
but you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the abyss. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who would not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like loathsome carrion, clothed with the dead, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the abyss, like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land, you have killed your people. Now, this is a poem read at the death of who? This is a poem read at the death of the Shining One, the, the original rebel in the cosmic conflict, isn't it? Who reads the poem? Who composes such a poem? You know, sort of, uh, and, and lets us look back on it. And does it look like the end here is an, uh, sort of an ending uh, of uh, something that will last forever, torment forever? It looks to me like the, like the, the Shining One. And uh, and those who have uh, who have made a common cause with the shining one are 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 gone. They are uh, that 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 is over for them. And it seems to me that this poem makes that point with greater clarity than just about any other text in the Bible. Now, we would have liked to do more today, but we got we had all kinds of uh, big ideas in here. So. Uh, Maybe we'll get into chapter 21 next time. Uh, maybe we need to do a little bit more of a retrospective on this, but uh, time is out. the time is up now.